Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Hey everyone, David here. We are diving into Lecture 6 in our Theology and Culture course. So as I start every time, little caveat, these lectures are being produced for a discussion-based course and then made available to everyone or anyone to listen to. This is the final lecture, so if you want to save time and you're smart, you could just listen to this one. But if you have the time and you like nerdy musings, I recommend going back to lecture one and starting from the beginning. Today's lecture will seek to summarize and reflect on Grenz as a whole and almost give a recap of everything we've overviewed. And then I'll give a few personal reflections to kind of wrap up. So I hope you guys enjoy. So diving into a summary of the last five weeks, the first lecture I opened by asking you all the question, how did you learn to pray? And in my experience of asking literally hundreds of Christians this question, less than 1% of people mention anything having to do with the scripture or the Bible. So first off, It should be said that the scriptures do in fact offer a wealth of teaching, and even more so, they offer examples, a plethora of examples of prayer. But the purpose of this question is to open the conversation to the discipline of theological method. So exposing and kind of exploring how our beliefs about God, about ourselves, and about our world actually form. And... Uh, we've been using the thought and writings of Stanley Grenz to explore how he wrestled with this question and why he believed it was key for seeing a vibrant, healthy renewal of the Christian faith in the 21st century. So from the start of uh, the course, I've been kind of challenging us to acknowledge or recognize that our knowledge of God, what's traditionally called theology proper, and our knowledge of self um, in the academy, what gets organized in the disciplines of anthropology, sociology, psychology, that these disciplines are inextricably connected because there is no theology apart from anthropology. And even an unlikely character from church history, the Swiss leader of the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin, in his massive tome, The Institutes of Christian Religion, he opens by writing, there is no knowledge of God without knowledge of self, and there is no knowledge of self without knowledge of God. And later he explains further in his book, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and ourselves, but these are connected by many ties. It is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. And really, in many ways, I think this is a critique of the modern age and what will evolve and follow in culture in Western Europe after Calvin. Um, and it is this, this elevation and optimism and, this, and centrality of the self and an optimism about the confidence, an optimism and confidence about the knowledge we can attain. And I think really simply what Grenz is trying to point out is an age-old truth that Christians have believed for 2,000 years, that humanity is stuck not only in our sinful behaviors, but we are stuck in our lack of knowledge of what's actually true. And 
and we are helpless and in need of God to come and intervene and act on our behalf um, to reveal and, and reveal himself to us. So my hope for you that I outlined at the beginning of this course is twofold. I use kind of the metaphor of the compass and the map. So by a compass, um, I mean your internal personal journey of learning to hear God's voice as you try to follow Jesus. And as he unfolds your fundamental calling, that is as a child of God, loved and unconditionally accepted. And then also your specific maybe assignments and ultimately your sense of vocational calling of how he's created you to help realize the kingdom of God on this earth in your life. So this is important in the practice of learning to have personal discernment, right? To have um, for navigating your life. And then there's also updating your map. This is the external. This is your more objective, hopefully, uh, wisdom and knowledge and understanding of reality as it is. And we all navigate life with a certain set of understandings, beliefs, expectations. And I want you to envision this as almost like a Google map of your mind. And it's obviously not just modeling two-dimensional space, but it's modeling values and, and beliefs and relationships and political realms and your job and, you know, everything. And I love, I love this quote by M. Scott Peck that I opened with. He says, mental health is dedication to reality at all costs. And in many respects, we all function with these cognitive maps that help us organize and make sense of and interpret our world and then help us make decisions about how to live in this world. And this becomes especially important in practicing cultural discernment of what we believe is good, right, true, worthy of our time, our investment. And so my hope is, after going through this course, that you would be more committed to truth and discovering what is most real about the world and allowing that to help guide your decisions and your life. Um, but that we would do it with a tender humility and openness. And lastly, I kind of narrated a bunch of my own journey and story of following Jesus, culminating with a handful of stories from my early 20s when I was working in a missionary organization. And uh, I'll circle back to these at the end as I reflect on how Stan, Stan's work has impacted me. So lecture two, we jumped into a summary of Grenz's work, and I opened with the question of how did we get here? So more of cultural definitions and exploring a little bit of history for those that are living in the West, living in America. And we define some terms loosely, uh, terms like modernity, postmodernity, and evangelicalism. And if you're still fuzzy on what those terms mean, I'd encourage you to go back to that lecture. Um, but they're key for understanding Grenz's critique of American evangelical Christianity and its specific kind of historical form that rose out of the post-World War II era and was really hitting a climax in the 80s and early 90s in terms of cultural influence. And uh, his main critique was that this American evangelical Christianity had become enmeshed and, and married to a specific form form and understanding of truth that had very deep historical philosophical roots in modernity and even even more so in a specific form of 
uh, epistemology that was dominant during the modern era. And this is known as a correspondence theory of truth called foundationalism. And we explored really briefly even a specific form of this called common sense realism that originated by a guy named uh, Thomas Reed out of Scotland. And the result of this marriage for Grenz is that it creates a form of the Christian faith that is individualistic, overly rational, hyper doctrine focused, overly confident and culturally unaware. And I think his fear and, and my greatest fear actually um, is that this type of Christianity creates a belief that your, your religion is cultureless. Uh, so this cultureless Christianity can be dangerous and make it almost impossible to engage in conversations with others, let alone learn something new and concede that you might be wrong in some of your beliefs. And in this pluralistic world, in an age of, you know, super high tensions in the political sphere and high tensions and debates around racial injustices and um, the existence of those injustices, let alone how they should be responded to, I just think it's it's a a very unhelpful iteration and form of Christianity to think that your beliefs are free of culture, free of bias, and not be open to being challenged and correcting some of those beliefs. So, uh, lecture three, we dove into some real nerdy theological stuff, um, exploring the sources and motifs in Stan Grenz's theology. And we talked about three primary sources that Grenz outlines as forming all Christian belief, and they are scripture, tradition, and culture. Or he uses the phrase scripture, church heritage, and culture. I think out of fear that many Protestants might be, I don't know, triggered by uh, viewing traditions as a source of theology. And we'll talk more about some critiques that Grenz has to weather because of this um, claim that these three things form our beliefs. But in my reading of him, he's not trying to make these sources equal in value. He's trying to be descriptive and honest in order to prioritize the scriptures. And, and he also, I think, does a beautiful job of kind of explaining how the distinction between these three sources in many ways is temporal, right? And what I mean by that is if we travel back in time, <laughs> the scriptures were written by real people who lived in a time and place in history and had their own traditions that they had inherited often many of which were forming um, the way they were interpreting and recording the revelation of God that they were getting in Scripture. And then they were living in a current culture. And so, in many ways, the Scriptures are just a canonized um, form of certain traditions and cultures. And even us in the present age who live in this cultural moment at some point in the future, we too will now just be part of the tradition or the church heritage. And so in many ways, the distinction when we go back to the early church and the era when the New Testament has not even been canonized yet, we see that scripture, tradition, and culture are very enmeshed. They are one. And so, again, Grenz is not trying to say that we should 
revise or change the meaning of a scriptural text based on our culture. He's simply saying that we need to have the same faith and belief and hope that the Holy Spirit can help reveal the truth of Scripture in the present as we have faith and hope and belief that the, that the Holy Spirit was inspiring authors in their cultural time and day. So he's just trying to remove this kind of false dichotomy that we live with, um, where the Scriptures are these pristine, perfect things that exist in a long age past, and now here we are as blank slates passively receiving their truth. And he would just simply say it's not that simple, and actually you run the risk of imposing cultural bias onto the scriptures if you don't acknowledge and embrace the degree to which your culture has shaped you. So, all right, that's enough. If you want to dive in a little deeper, you can go back and listen to lecture three. And then lastly, I outlined his motifs of the Trinity, community, and eschatology. And I won't get into these right now, um, but go back and have a listen if you're confused or curious about what he meant by those terms. And lecture four, really, he dives into this question of, uh, or we dove into this question of, how do we know what we know? How do we know truth? How do we come to form our beliefs? And this is obviously, for many reasons, the area of Grenz's thought and work that gets the most flack, the most critique. And to this very day, I'll be hopping around on the internet <laughs> and I'll stumble into some blog post or academic article or be reading a book and depending on the author's background subculture theological tradition they will uh, demonize Grenz for dooming Christianity to relativism and disregarding the authority of scripture and in my opinion again after sitting in Grenz's the whole corpus of his work 29 books over 100 articles um, I think these are just shallow misreadings of what he was trying to communicate and the insight that he was offering to us as Christians. So let's recap his understanding of truth um, really briefly. So we disclosed, again, the, the surface value critique is that he's a postmodern and he is dooming uh, Christianity by relinquishing objective truth and acknowledging that all truth is to some degree subjective. And ironically, much of what Grenz wrote about truth is not actually postmodern in the true sense of the term of, you know, the philosophical schools of thought that have evolved in the last 50 years of the academy. Um, but in many ways, he's pulling from theories of epistemology that have existed right alongside correspondence and foundationalism, uh, theories of truth, right? And again, correspondence and foundationalism, this is this belief that truth functions uh, in a very one-to-one -one relationship, uh, and it is simply a matter of correlation between language and then the veracity of reality. So um, simple statements like, there's a pen on my desk, and in fact, we can verify if there is or is not a pen, right? So um, which Grenz acknowledges that in day-to-day -day life, almost like Newtonian, how, how Newton's theories of mechanics and motion actually help us send rockets into space. Um, but in the modern day, under the surface, we now recognize from a 
scientific standpoint that this is not the whole picture and that we need other theories and other more complex ways of thinking about reality to actually understand how particles and matter work. And, and Grenz is kind of saying a similar thing with truth. He's saying, yeah, on the surface, all of us live day to day, and it appears to us that truth functions in this very simplistic correspondence foundationalist form where we have one-to-one coherence or correspondence, and then um, we build more complex beliefs out of more basic beliefs that are undeniable or, quote, objectively true and can't be argued. Um, And in many ways, what he is doing is just trying to not deny that, but supplement it by explaining and demonstrating that our beliefs and what we hold to be true do not actually form, nor do we rely on them in such a simplistic way. And we outlined a bunch of different features that he's trying to bring to the conversation to expand on what truth is and how truth uh, forms in us or what we be- how our tr- true beliefs form um, in us. So those key points were participation. So the, the formation of truth comes through embodied participation. We are not passive, passive observers. Uh, I don't think Grenz would be a big fan of the concept of worldview because it implicitly portrays us as a passive viewer of a wor- of the world around us, like a scientist who can objectively uh, pick out what's true and false. But in fact, that's not true. We uh, It's not real. We are participants in the story. We are not viewers. And um, we are being shaped by the very world we're trying to observe. Uh, and then he also talks about how Truth is constructed by language. And here he gets into theories of coherence, um, where truth does not just build from simple to complex, but also truth is more like a web, where beliefs are contingent upon one another and interdependent. Um, And then he also explores the concept of narrative and how stories across cultures and across history seem to be one of the primary mediums through which values and what's most important and what humans believe and what humans hold to be true uh, is shared and just the formational power of stories and envisioning and understanding our own sense of identity in light of a larger story. Uh, And then he exposes and kind of explains the pragmatic nature of truth, which again is not necessarily a postmodern view of truth. That's a very modern notion that truth is what works. It's what describes uh, things accurately and that it's constantly getting feedback to correct itself. So in many ways, the whole empirical method of science is built upon a very pragmatic approach to truth. Truth is what the broad community that is doing scientific inquiry agrees upon. And it is always kind of fluid and changing and improving. Um, And then he also explores this concept of fiduciary, all truth being fundamentally about a commitment of trust. And I love, he quotes T.F. Torrance, uh, he's a Scottish theologian, and Torrance writes, one of the ironies of recent intellectual history is that just when scientists are increasingly becoming theologians, that is, embracing mystery and faith, many theologians are struggling harder than ever to remain scientists. And so the whole point here is 
that the discipline of study kind of sets the rules for how we are to study that thing. And even in very objective uh, disciplines, or I should say more objective disciplines like the natural sciences, physics, chemistry, there is a level of all the words we just said, participation, construction, narrative, and pragmatism, right? That, that a person who's going to learn that discipline entrusts themselves to, right? A, a medical student entrusts themselves to the wisdom and experience of the history of the medical profession and, and the knowledge and wisdom of medical professionals and professors who are teaching and training them, right? So there's always this kind of relational trust happening to gain any knowledge in any discipline or any field, whether it's theology or physics. And then finally, we see kind of implied in the way Grenz explores the concept of truth, his three motifs of tr community, trinity, and eschatology. We see how those start to shape his concept of truth. And so the communitarian focus is where all of the above happens, the participation, the linguistic construction, the narratives, the pragmatic uh, feedback, and the fiduciary kind of trust-based way that beliefs form and we come to believe things to be true. That all happens in localized communities. And in this day and age, um, probably even digital communities maybe that we participate in through the web. And Trinitarian, uh, here he's getting more into metaphysics and uh, gets pretty dense. We won't really do a recap on that right now. But eschatological, the last one, what he means again here is not the predictive ciphering that many people associate with eschatology of trying to map the geopolitical events of the world and predict when the end of the world is coming. That's not at all what Grenz is talking about. By eschatological, he means um, that the fundamental orientation and posture of Christian truth, of the truth of the gospel, is future-focused. And it is, it is, in a sense, you could say the future is more certain than the present. And it is a truth that functions in a prophetic way, not an objective way. So at one point he writes, the objectivity set forth in the biblical narrative is the objectivity of the world as God wills it. And he calls this eschatological realism. So Christians, we, we anticipate in a future focus sense, the truth of the gospel, and we pull it into the present. We do not have it objectively. We do not have it wholly. We do not have it empirically in a provable sense. Um, I mean, Paul writes about this in the New Testament, that we have this seal or this deposit through the Holy Spirit, which provides almost a inexplicable, subjective, experiential assurance of this future hope but we do not possess the hope yet. That's why it's called hope, and that's why it's called faith. So for Grenz, the, the most important posture of Christian truth is, is eschatological in, in the future, and it is prophetic. It is not objectively possessed in the present. So many people who have not read Grenz's work in depth, they hear a phrase or hear that he doesn't believe in, quote, objective truth and that he's a coherentist that, uh, and they assume that he means culture should be an equal source to inform our beliefs as scripture. Uh, 
Uh, I was just reading a couple of days ago a blog post, and this guy, it was a totally different topic. I was studying something else, and this guy had this little paragraph where he goes on this rant about Grenz and how you can't um, trust anyone who puts Grenz as a footnote in their in their writings or anything. And if one actually reads his books in both word and example, it's quite clear for, that for Grenz, the scriptures are the primary authoritative source of beliefs. But his point is that without realizing these other sources and these other ways in which truth and beliefs form in us, that we are already bringing bias to that text. And thus, uh, the more convinced you are that your beliefs come only from the scripture, the more blind you will be to your own cultural accommodations and bias. Lastly, lecture five, what does it mean to be human? So tying all these things together, contrary to his critics' fears, Grenz concludes that postmodernism leaves humanity in a hopeless and despondent place, a, a total loss of self trying to self-validate and find meaning in a pluralistic sea of options with no compass. And I think this is really interesting. Um, even in recent years, there have been a few philosophers and theorists who talk about how our culture in the West, at least, is moving into a meta-modern phase. And really simply, this metamodern phase or cultural mood, what, what actually starts to happen is, rather than a total collapse or loss of self, we see as individuals within our own psyches and then within the broader culture at large, we see a pendulum swing back and forth between almost the postmodern and the modern, right? We, we see this pendulum swing back and forth between anxiety and hope, uh, fatalism and sincerity, and authenticity and there's there's it's like people sense that the floor has given way but then they're still grasping to try and find some broader sense of meaning or purpose for their lives and in many ways i think this this is again as we've discussed seen in the the reaching for po political ideologies to provide this this cultural reconstruction that is that is collapsing and giving way, and so we have this almost this phase of real irony where where people are simultaneously embracing the relativity and pluralism, and then also becoming more uh, more confident and tribalistic in what they believe to be true than ever before. So it's this kind of uh, odd odd contradiction and and thing that I think maybe even Grenz didn't quite see coming. But back to Grenz, so he, contrary to his critics, does not see postmodernism providing an answer for how to move forward. Um, he sees, sees humanity being lost in a pluralistic sea of options with no compass. And But he would say God has acted in history and the Holy Spirit has worked through people as authors and compilers of the scriptures. And there is a theological answer. There is a course that has been charted to help humanity become unlost. And the key here, Grenz rightly sees that our lostness is not just merely sinful behaviors as individuals and corporately, but that we are also lost epistemologically. We are not 
able to know what is what we are to trust, who we are, what is most true, how we should live. And so for him, the theological answer to this question, to the postmodern loss of self, is the scripture's unfolding of what it means to be a human created imago Dei, created in the image of God, destined to be like him. And I unpack a lot of the theological views that people have held throughout history. And to these views of structural, relational, and functional, Grenz adds what, what he uh, sees to be perhaps the most important components of the Imago Dei, and that is the social component. That is, we do not represent or embody God as individuals in an age in the modern West of the reign of the individual. Grenz thinks that the scriptures provide this critique and correction to us all, that we are fundamentally social creatures, and that we fundamentally, for Christians, are ecclesial creatures. We need to be part of a local family, a church body. We cannot follow Jesus as a lone ranger. And then also he adds the eschatological or prophetic component that the Imago Dei is something we're becoming and something we will one day become like Christ with a resurrected body and new heavens, new earth. Um, The Imago Dei is not something we possess fully in the present. And thus the biblical picture of created intent and destiny over humanity And the playing out of the whole drama validates the very sources, motifs, and even his understanding of truth that we just summarized. And so what I mean by this is the Bible explains that we're created as social creatures. And so it makes sense that anthropology, psychology, and sociology would now in in our current day and age validate that beliefs and truth form in communities. And in the scriptures, uh, God creates with words through speaking, both in this cosmic sense, in the opening poetry of Genesis 1, and also in the historical sense of creating people groups, of the call of Abraham, of the formation of Israel, of the exodus led by Moses, and then ultimately through the incarnation and the words and teaching of Jesus Christ, and then Pentecost and the descending of the Holy Spirit. So throughout the whole God story, it is, it is with the revelation of words that people get access to this eternal truth called the gospel. And so why would it shock us if sociologists, philosophers are saying beliefs are linguistic constructs, or we gain access to reality through the words we use to describe it? And then... Finally, much of what is most true about the gospel exists in the future in the form of a promise or a hope. So it's okay to be content that our knowledge in the present is partial. And so for Grenz, the doctrine of the Imago Dei becomes the key to help connect and explain um, both the answers that the cultural moment is seeking and also the methodology and, and logic that he's trying to communicate. So in summary, Grenz believes some of the deconstruction of modernity with its cold, calculated, individualistic, universal rationality is good. He thinks that it has opened up the floodgates for the recovery of the mystery, the wonder, and the participatory risk of faith that God has invited his people into throughout history. Uh, this this adventure and um, invitation to follow a first century rabbi named Jesus. 
or as Paul calls it, being led by the Spirit, getting caught up into the truth of the gospel, tasting and seeing it and longing for its fulfillment rather than holding it objectively fully already in the present. And we are created as social creatures destined to be like Christ in a transformed sense. And we thus are left to invite others to come taste and see for themselves. Uh, but we can't objectively prove this to anyone. We might be able to, to teach a course on theology and culture and present it to someone as, as a plausible option. Um, but at the end of the day, God is the one that initiates and reveals himself. God is the one that creates these countercultural communities called the, the church, called the body of Christ. And, and this is a people who are to be shaped by the salvation history, the story of God that has been recorded in Scripture and passed down. And as we participate in this community, we learn new language that helps us understand the reality out there, helps us map the world, and also helps us understand our own compass of how we are to navigate and live in it and how God is calling and leading us. And this happens in ways that we could not see before, where, where people come to participate not as observers, but as members. There is ownership and skin in the game, and where one can experience all the beauty of the risks of following Jesus and trying to be obedient to him. You, you enter these communities and you take on new practices. You discover an identity that is not natural and not probably communicated to you anywhere else that you are a beloved child, unconditionally loved and accepted with infinite worth, and that ultimately we live in the present from a definition of truth that is not yet fulfilled or experienced. We participate in a prophetic community of hope that is a testament, a witness, a martyr to the world. Um, and and it, is a, it is a methodology of weakness and brokenness and foolishness, as Paul says. And in, in Grenz's best judgment, he's trying to help us recover the vibrancy of our biblical faith that has been charted from the early church's first days and lived out by remnants of believers throughout church history, renewed again and again in different seasons and in different geographical locations around the earth. And moving through this, all of this participation in these communities, the truth of the gospel moves from head to heart and it, like Calvin said, confronts us and renews our knowledge of self as much as it explores and reveals knowledge of God. And ultimately, we learn that we are so utterly dependent and reliant upon the inbreaking revelation of God to know anything that is worthy of, of following or believing. And that we come not to rely on our deductive and inductive prowess, our strategies, our intelligence, but that we come utterly dependent on the person of Jesus Christ. So, my reflections on all this, my reflections on Stan Gren's work and almost a year of engaging in a lot of theoretical, philosophical, you know, reading and musing. Um, I think my biggest critique of Gren's work is, is that in, in my best judgment, he's not really arguing for or advocating something very different than St. Augustine or Anselm or even uh, the Protestant reformer John Calvin 
is is valuing and prioritizing, right? Uh, Augustine and Anselm, we believe so that we may understand, or as Anselm modifies it, that we participate in faith-seeking understanding. In both of these frameworks, um, the foundational movement here is belief and faith and trust. It is not objectively, provably um, scientific knowledge of God. And neither is it blind faith or blind trust. There might be some rationality and plausibility that goes in there, but at some point we have to leap. At some point we have to lean back and trust in the and, and acknowledge our dependency, right? This is at the core heart of the gospel. As Paul will outline again and again in these speeches in the book of Acts, the, you enter the kingdom of God on your knees in repentance, not through argument and rhetoric and rationality. And so I think my biggest frustration with Grenz is that although he talks about church heritage and tradition as a fundamental source of theology, I feel like he, in his writings, is actually pretty weak on drawing from the church fathers, the medieval theologians, and the reformers, and um, let alone global voices uh, beyond the walls of the Western academic theological traditions, right? And so, in his critiques of modernity, I think his focus on more postmodern and more contemporary sources actually probably... (laughs) almost justifiably opened him up to a lot of critique from many people. And just to iterate or kind of um, validate maybe some of these these concerns, I want to read one little excerpt from uh, the last chapter of my thesis. And I'm here quoting a German Lutheran theologian named Helmut Tielicke. So Tielicke explains that he has found, quote, the modern criteria of truth rather superficial, pointing out that it refers only to the external symptoms of truth and not to the essence of truth. Tilica goes on to say, an action is, quote, true when there is agreement between goal and deed, between what ought to be and what is willed. Drawing from Anselm of Canterbury, Tilica differentiates between the modern empirical definition of truth where the simpler concepts of correspondence, common sense realism, and foundationalism apply. And he appeals instead to a medieval understanding of truth as the highest good. This is nearly identical to the logic with which Grenz can simultaneously endorse the critical realist perspective in regards to day-to-day affairs of life, which is a superficial social convention, but then utterly reject the same schema in favor of eschatological realism for questions of belief and meaning. Okay, so let me unpack that a little. I was reading Helmut Tielicke's Anthropology and I came across this and it just struck me um, how in many ways he's arguing the exact same thing as Grenz, that the modern, the age of modernity created this understanding of truth that was very shallow. It was very superficial. It was all about, do the words correspond to the reality? Um, Whereas what Grenz is getting at in a biblical sense, the concept of truth is this deeper essence of, it's not a question of just merely what's true right now in the present. It is a a question of what will be true one day and how should we live in light of that truth that will one day be here. 
that will one day be realized. And it's a truth that has more to do with ethics and morality and how we should live and spend our days on this earth than it is a simple question of correspondence of something being objectively true in the present. And and it just struck me reading Tilika how um, how saturated he was in the church fathers and in the medieval theologians and how he was almost carrying on this legacy that's been passed down of the biblical faith and these biblical concepts of truth. And and I think it, it frustrated me to realize how Grenz had not done that and in many ways I feel like had sabotaged his own project um, or at least at least minimized its the scope of his influence um, to many American Christians. So that's my biggest critique of Grenz's thought and work. Obviously, I don't find his scheme and uh, framework perfect or flawless, but I think more importantly for me, what he does is chart uh, a course. He, give, he provides an example of someone who is able to hold on to this deep, heartfelt, passionate love for Jesus, commitment to, to following in the truth of Christianity that's been passed down, yet he has this generous, uh, warm approach to engaging culture and this, this humble approach to engaging other people's views um, that is just so attractive and, and feels so Christ-like. And I think in regards to his concept of truth and what we learned from that exploration, I know I talked a lot about this in previous lectures. Uh, you probably remember about 5% of it. So there are simply two phrases I would love for you to put in your pocket and take with you after participating in this course. The first one is critical realism. And our, this, this is a, a phrase or concept that basically means our epistemology is always being refined and sharpened. We never know everything and we never know anything perfectly. So we should have a, a chastised rationality. We should, we should operate with a level of humility about our beliefs and the knowledge we think we've arrived at. But we also believe in metaphysical realism. We believe as Christians, uh, or I think we should at least, believe that truth does exist, that reality is there. Uh, truth exists in science, in philosophy, in ethics, in morality. There is such a thing as right and wrong, even if our map or our approximation of it is always in the process of being refined and updated. This view of critical realism, in my opinion, accepts the fact that there may not always be a clear solution. And sometimes in life, in this present age, we might be stuck choosing between two less than ideal or less than true options. So we might be asking ourselves, which one is less bad rather than which one is perfectly true and right? And I think that this dose of humility is needed if we're going to engage in the messy work of, of building the kingdom of Jesus because it's full of relationships, it's full of confrontation, it's full of um, confronting different cultural perspectives uh, both in the personal sense of personality types and life experiences and also in the grander sense of linguistic cultures, different religions. Um, and yes, so critical realism is our friend. It is a, a humble approach to 
truth that still believes and does not give up the pursuit. And then secondly, I think uh, probably equally important is this phrase that Grenz is so huge on, eschatological realism. And I think this is a specifically Christian form of truth. Uh, This is Grenz's phrase that he uses to summarize what he means that our epistemological confidence is fundamentally future-oriented. It is not here yet. Hence, why this is why we call it faith or trust. And as Christians, unlike strict empirical scientists uh, who are who are constricted to making truth claims and making decisions based on the facts in the present that they can deduce through experimentation. As Christians, we believe things are true that have no empirical evidence, or at least less than sufficient, I should say, empirical evidence. We believe in truths that are not yet realized yet. This is a, the prophetic impulse that undergirds Judaism and Christianity and is saturating throughout all of the scriptures. As, as believers, as, as the people of God, we pull the future into the present by having faith in what God has done and will one day do. And so, implications of these two. I think without these two understandings of truth, I fear that it will lead to forms of Christianity that are increasingly sectarian and and tribal in their nature. Uh, Forms that are unable to acknowledge their own biases, that will live from false maps or pictures of reality, and will be actually unable to dialogue with people from different belief systems, different cultural backgrounds, whether that's theological traditions within the body of Christ or externally outside the church. And I think these forms will be unable to engage in a pursuit of truth without feeling very defensive and vulnerable. Um, I've heard the analogy given often that that someone with without these forms of truth of critical realism and eschatological realism if 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 we hold our truth in this modernistic kind of form that Grenz is so critiquing it creates almost a house of cards where every belief in your framework is equally valuable and not connected in a sense of vitality but connected and interdependent in a weak way like a house of cards where if if you threaten um, or challenge one belief, you're actually challenging the whole belief system because every belief is contingent upon every other's. And if one falls, they all fall. And I think this is the worst approach to forming our Christian beliefs uh, because it makes us prone to insecurity and it postures us defensively and almost, almost militantly towards others who think differently than us. Um, and it, it, it in many ways prevents us from seeing the humanity of others, even if we disagree with them. So I think those are two things that are hugely important. And I think also just on a more personal note, kind of closing up here, Grenz's work exposed in me, my own biases, um, that I bring to the table in my beliefs about God and my preaching and my teaching and my, my thought world. And, and has showed me that I was blind to the much broader scope of how, how beliefs have formed in me and how they form in others. And in the last five years, I've um, been part of a community here try, helping plant a church in Denver. And then also about twice a year, I've been 
conducting my own theological social learning labs. And I, two weeks out of a year, I travel and do a week of debriefing uh, of these missionary training schools of this organization called YWAM that I used to be a part of. And slowly over the years, I began to see the powerful way these training programs had formed beliefs in me. And then uh, now I'm watching it somewhat objectively coming in from the outside, um, watching beliefs be formed in people. And then I'm also in communication and contact with these people after they leave this training, this six-month training experience, and watching the way that some of them regress or struggle, um, maybe experience cognitive dissonance and even change beliefs that had been formed in them during that season. And I think to unpack this a little, let me offer you guys a metaphor that has been helpful for me. So uh, as expected, it's very nerdy and physics-related. So this is the metaphor of the magnet. And um, let me do a little explanation and teaching on what I mean. So a permanent magnet, um, we're all probably very familiar with this concept. We have permanent magnets all around us, um, holding our phones onto mounts in our cars and holding things on our refrigerators at home. So a permanent magnet is formed when you find a ferromagnetic material. So iron is one of the most common uh, ferromagnetic materials that we would think of. And what it means to be ferromagnetic is the atomic structure of that material is malleable. And uh, so on a molecular level, when you have compounds or elements um, they're made up of electrons and protons. Depending on the orientation and kind of positioning of those electron and protons, you, you create a tiny molecular magnet. And this is on like the micro level, you know, nanometers, tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, and what happens is when you have a conglomerate of a bunch of these atoms or, or compounds, all those little tiny magnets in their natural state, they point in different directions. And so essentially they cancel each other out. If you have a magnet, a tiny little magnet pointing in one direction, you have another one right next to it oriented the opposite direction, the effective magnetic field of those molecules cancels out, right? And so the net field or the net, um, yeah, the net field that's emanating from that material or that rock is zero. Um, but what's interesting about ferromagnetics is that these are materials that can be manipulated and where on a molecular level these, these little magnetic dipoles can be reoriented or changed. And so how you do that is you place this ferromagnetic material in a stronger external magnetic field and you allow it to sit there for an extended period of time. And this is, you can Google this, it's called a hysteresis curve. And if you allow this magnet to sit, in, or this, this ferromagnetic rock, if you allow it to sit in that external magnetic field long enough, it will reach this critical point called saturation. And essentially that's a tipping point where enough of these molecular dipoles have been reoriented to align with the external magnetic field such that when you shut the external magnetic field off or when you pull the rock out of the field, 
um, it will retain the magnetic orientation and it will be it will retain uh, a net magnetic field that it can now emanate on its own and obviously it'll be much weaker um, and it will decrease a little um, and and it will solidify though at a certain level of now creating its own internal magnetic field so this has become my crude working metaphor for belief formation and development of people whether in a religious context or a non-religious context um, which is kind of a false dichotomy and there's a whole nother caveat but so further i think i think this model or metaphor provides a better way to understand how we are led by actually more of our fears and desires than we are right, wrong, true, false. And that's kind of a whole nother combo for maybe another day or another course. Um, but after, back to debriefs. So after years of conducting these debriefs, I have narrowed it down to three main factors that I observe that are shaping and forming people in these training schools, which in the metaphor there's, these are the three main factors that create the external field that if you Im, kind of place yourself in and indwell in these three things, um, they will start to change you. And your beliefs will start to align with these the beliefs of the, embedded in these three things. So at these discipleship training schools that are six months long, people leave their hometowns, their families, uh, their practices, their jobs, every, uh, their habits, everything they leave behind and they are extracted and they come to this base. And once there, they're brought into relationships and they form a community. They then come to envision what they're doing as part of a shared story. They are, they are one chapter in a story that has been going long before them and will continue after they leave. And then they participate in a shared, clearly defined set of practices that align with the values embedded in that story that they're now participating in. So once again, the three things that shape this external formative magnetic field are community, story, and practices. And what I realized is that these schools were in a sense... Um, they would never call them this, but they were creating these little monasteries, right? Now, by outlining these three practices, I don't mean to naturalize or, you know, make it a formula for how Christian formation happens. But, um, and obviously the Holy Spirit is fundamentally the agent working. But I think these three things, uh, I would say, facilitate for the Spirit of God to come and move very freely or inhibit the Spirit of God from coming to move. So it's not to rule out that God can't move and reveal himself in any circumstance or any community or any place and time uh, when a person is doing any set of practices. But I think the ease and access the, to, to the Spirit of God and to the revelation of the gospel becomes easier when these three things line up with the divine revelation that has been passed down through the story of God in Scripture, right? It's it's the early church. It's this community that is guided by this interpretation of the Old Testament where the Messiah has come, and then they give themselves to a shared life, to shared practices. And this is the method and form of how the early church came to be. 
Um, and it's modeled off of the Old Testament model of the the synagogue for the Jews who had been scattered throughout um, throughout the Middle East and Europe and Asia due to different kind of you know tyrannical takeovers of the Promised Land. And what these three things do is when you have an intentional community living into a story and sharing in practices is it creates a pocket of space on the earth where people can discover the revealed message of the gospel. So allow me to demonstrate a little more concretely what I mean and how I see this happening, both in uh, these training school settings and also in a local church setting. So um, I used to think that these training schools were so impactful because of amazing teaching and these gifted teachers and people that are flown in from all over the world different theological backgrounds, church backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. And, and that is a component of it. But what I, what I slowly realized over time by doing these, I would brain, what I would do is get up in front of this class with 100 people and I would have them brainstorm what were the practices and rhythms that defined and shaped your life in the last six months. And the, this is the compiled list of all these schools. Um, when people come to these training schools, they devote themselves to rhythms of prayer, b- biblical theological teaching and preaching, worship uh, in the form of often music, musical worship, uh, community service where they just volunteer and serve in their local context and communities, a work duty where they serve and give their time and do work for free on the base in which they live. So that might be cleaning, cooking, uh, landscaping, but in general, it's manual labor. Uh, 21 meals a week with community. So think about that. People come from all these contexts, and then for six months straight, they never eat a single meal alone. They're almost forced into this network of intentional relationships, right? It's this vibrant community that hops on this roller coaster together and locks in. They participate in evangelistic initiatives. Um, and some may be done really healthy, some may be done not so healthy. But the point is they are being pushed to vulnerably share their very private, very personal faith with other humans and to engage in conversations about very vulnerable personal things. Um, they're being pushed to take risks out of their comfort zone. There's a lot of play that happens. There's a lot of just... Um, light-hearted adventures that unfold in these training schools on the weekends. They form lifelong friendships. Uh, they're saturating in scripture reading to a degree that is probably much more intense than ever before in their life. And then, importantly, they're given space and guidance to do specific journaling activities and theological reflection on what they're learning. So they're forced to not just hear, but also um, synthesize, summarize, and interpret for themselves how this is impacting them and draw, they're becoming meaning makers and they're practicing applying significance and meaning to different experiences they're having. And in many ways, we see that these are very analogous to uh, what's outlined as distinctive rhythms in the early church in Acts 2 and 3, right? Of a group of people devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, which was basically recounting the story of God and how it culminated as Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. 
So it's the kerygma, it's the gospel, it's the, the fact that Jesus is the second Moses, the second Adam, the descendant of David, the eternal king, right? Uh, they're participating in fellowship, so community of life together. Koinonia is the Greek word used in the New Testament. They're breaking bread, and again, not just in the sense of going up and eating a wafer and taking communion at a church service once a week, but they're breaking bread daily in homes in the New Testament, right? They're sharing common meals together and even sometimes common purse. And in these discipleship training schools, 21 meals a week, breaking bread in community. And then lastly, prayer, rhythms of prayer of intentionally setting aside time, distraction-free time, shut the phone off, put the phone away, distraction-free time of presenting oneself before God. Um, And some days maybe it's very mundane and nothing that significant happens, but over time there's this formative process that's happening, even beyond the mysterious ways that God might be working in answers to prayer, there's an internal formative process happening through the practice of prayer. And so, um, and then we'll go through a whole nother table on the side and we'll map out what are the behaviors and attitudes that, and the value system that's almost assumed and embedded and implied by these set of practices, right? And it'll become a list of things like risk, willingness, confronting fears, giving up and sacrifice, asking for help, dependency, embracing awkwardness, growing in discipline, uh, pushed through discomforts, trusting others, um, experiencing hard, difficult relationships, uh, not giving up and not being able to avoid issues. Spending uh, hours in prayer leads to a slowness and calm and quiet in the internal world. Um, There's a level of expectancy and faith that comes to reading the scriptures or engaging in worship or listening to teaching. You know, there's this sitting on the edge of your seat that seems to be embodied in these practices of always expecting God to do something next. Um, And on and on and on. And so I would get these emails after doing these debriefs from students for years now. uh, Or I'd catch a message or a post from them on social media of how this training school experience was, quote, not the real world. And to be fair, there are certain aspects of normal life that are radically different when you're enmeshed in some training experience like this, or or when you're a college student, for that matter, right? There are these seasons of life that are, in a sense, um, not the real world because you're maybe not carrying a financial burden that you will in a normal season of life. Or you might have meals being cooked for you by a community kitchen or a cafeteria, and you're not expected to buy groceries and cook your own food. And right, So for sure there are some practical aspects that are different, but, but I'm, I'm always concerned when I hear people say that something's not the real world, because in reality, far beyond just those couple practical differences, all the ingredients of life are the same, right? You wake up every day and you have 16 waking hours of how you're going to spend your time. And so it's not that a training environment like this, this monastic, charismatic experience that YWAM creates, it's not that it's less real. It's just that it is intentionally real. It is, it is for 60 years now, YWAM has been running programs similar to this. Um, the DTS isn't quite that old, but for, for decades, they've been running these training schools and 
and prayerfully discerning the the habits and the practices and they've been creating this shared narrative and story together of the the history of YWAM and the things God has done in YWAM and through YWAM. And again, it's like any organization, it's not perfect. But there's embedded in these training experiences a very specific telos, a very specific aim and goal to invite participants to realize that they're, they're part of this story of God wanting to act on the earth. And and the cognitive dissonance that someone experiences when they go home or leave that community, it's not because that community was less real. It was just a different real. So the community that then a person returns to, or maybe communities, has a different story that's guiding it, has a different likely secular story uh, that's creating and imposing a certain value system on that person and a certain identity on that person that that also then is embodied through different practices, right? Um, so if we went down the list and wrote out our own list of in our own lives, what do we spend our time doing? How many hours a week do we do X? How many hours a week do we binge watch Netflix? How many hours a week do we spend in prayer, right? What we would see is that our practices are equally formational or maybe deformational to the degree that practices we do contradict each other and undo each other. And so in a more American pragmatic sense, um, I say this quote a lot, but this business guru, a guy named W.E. Deming, used to say, your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you're getting. And, and I would simply, what I've simply realized from doing these debrief experiences and then reading Gren's is that what we do does something to us. The beliefs we have and the things we hold to be true are not coincidental. The life experiences, the communities we identify most with, the practices of those communities and the story that is, that is shared in that community, those three things shape us. And, and what we do as we participate in these communities, it does something to us. And... And so I, ha- I have friends who have walked away from Jesus, stopped following Jesus, and in all honesty, based on the experiences they've had in their life and the communities, stories, and practices they give themselves to, it fully makes sense to me why they find it hard to connect with God because practices, stories, and communities are not neutral. They point us and orient us to some end. And recall those the two stories I shared kind of these really life-defining moments of encountering that guy in that parking lot, um, kind of in this moment of brokenness and really wrestle and struggling with uh, my Christian faith and on the verge of abandoning it, right? I had this kind of theophany experience where I pray this prayer and this guy pops out of the woods. And um, and then also later, about a year later, while I was staffing the school, I had a very almost Pentecostal, charismatic manifestation encounter with God where the the Holy Spirit manifested in my body in a a physical way. It wasn't just a warming or feeling. It was like an electrifying electricity that shot through my nerves. Um, And to my best interpretation, these were not merely inward constructions, right, or feelings of religious awareness. They were, in many ways, 
concrete, measurable, perceptible, and even visual manifestations. But both of their occurrences, both of these events, the significance or meaning that I connected to them were shaped by that community, that narrative, and the practices that I was giving myself to. And, and more than that, those two experiences were facilitated and a direct causal result from my participation in this training community. Um, they were, you could say, facilitated for me by the community story and practices to have this very real encounter and experience with God. So from start to finish, in a sense, they were not, they were not generated in any fake sense, but they were nurtured in an organic and real sense. And this is key for me in understanding our discipleship journeys in ourselves and in others, and, and for understanding why many may not see any plausible validity in the Christian faith. Because they have, they have been part of community stories and practices um, that discourage the types of experiences I had. The modern secular narrative discourages the types of supernatural, transcendent religious experiences that I had uh, in my early 20s. And so I think this is essential for us as followers of Jesus who live in some local setting somewhere to, to almost look at our own lives and ask ourselves, who are the communities and what are the embedded stories and practices in those communities that I identify with and that are forming my beliefs? And again, I'm not, I'm not naive and going to pretend that there is a perfect community out there that does that um, without flaw or error. But I think this is fundamental in this age for understanding the significance, the power, and the purpose of the local church. And, and as Grenz would write, getting back to him, this is why the Imago Dei is fundamentally the ecclesial self that we are not meant to, we cannot um, experience and come to understand the truth of the gospel until we are participating in community, a community guided by the story of the gospel and practices embedded with these values. And so what, what Grenz saw decades ago so clearly um, it's not so much that one world is less real than the other in a pluralistic globalized society but communities do create different ways to be in the world to spend our time and these in turn form different beliefs in us and then generate different types of experiences and thus back to truth in the Imago Dei the church is not merely a community held together by ascending to a specific list of beliefs by just orthodoxy or believing the right things alone. That is part of it. Rather, the church is a prophetic community that is enlivened and, and, and filled with the Holy Spirit, and it invites humans into this community to participate in a story that echoes from eternity past, to be transformed into this original identity that God has has marked and imprinted on us from creation and destines for us to step into in eternity, right? And it's through participating in a set of practices, a common rule of life, that this identity that we saturate in the truth of the gospel and this identity forms in us. So the church is a place concerned with not only discovering truth in the present, like critical realism, but the church 
is fundamentally interested in proclaiming a truth that is not yet realized or even verifiable. This is the eschatological realism. The church is a concrete manifestation where the truth of how God wills the world to be and how it will one day be is proclaimed in the present and hopefully embodied, even even hinted at in the present. I'm just going to pray to close us. Thank you all for sticking with us all the way through. This course was not for the faint of heart, and it was anything but simple and brief. So, yeah, thank you for sticking with us. I hope it's been beneficial for all of you. Let me just pray to close. Yeah, so Holy Spirit, I pray that through this intellectual engagement to the degree possible, you would bring transformation and clarity to our minds. And more than just teaching us information, I pray and hope that these lectures has helped us get revelation from you of a reality that is already present all around us. The fact that we are being formed by communities, stories, and practices. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stir faith and you would invite those listening into almost their own renewal of those three things. That you would right now even be stirring ideas, desires, risks that they might take in this coming season to see their formation and their pursuit of following you transformed in a new way. And I just pray for those who don't have these three things, for those who don't have a strong community of faith, of brothers and sisters and people who they can both follow Jesus with and receive the truthfulness of the gospel with. Pray that you would help lead them to community. You provide friendships and community for them uh, to experience this. So We love you, Jesus. We thank you that you didn't leave us without knowledge. We thank you that you do reveal to us and that we can have hope and confidence in what you've revealed. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.